Welcome to the Startup Competitors Podcast, where we talk with early stage entrepreneurs to understand what information they use to inform product roadmap, strategy, and market differentiation. Just a quick reminder, this is the second part of our interview with Frank. The interview went a little bit long. If you'd like to hear the first half, listen to last week first and come back here and enjoy. What's your role now? What's next for you? So my role is to run the, along with my co-founder, the product area for what we do. So uh, as I mentioned, sales sales engagement, when the category started, was more oriented around prospecting. Um, So it is an unbelievably effective and efficient way. And effective is key here. It's, It's oriented just as well around the authenticity of that communication, the targeted nature of that communication. In other words, we're not going to spam blast the world. We're going to send things that are that are targeted to you because they're relevant to you. This is not someone taking an email marketing platform and just spamming people, right? Um, so it owns like email, VoIP, calling, right? Calendar, like calendaring, a number of things. It's a solution that, you know, it, it covers the communication workflows for a seller. The place where it initially got traction, which makes sense, was in the prospecting workflows. Account execs were starting to adopt it because, of course, if you're communicating with uh, someone that you're selling to, it's, a, it's an in-flight opportunity. You're going to keep doing that. Sales off realize, hey, there, there's an opportunity to own the rest of that workflow because if you look at CRM, the reality is it has not been designed for the end user, right? It's an amazing database of record. The dashboards are great for the C-suite and like the VP of sales, but it's not a pleasant experience for the person in like inputting the data, whether it's their salesperson, they're a customer success person, or they're a a support person. So if you know that, then the next question is probably, okay, well, what would those people actually need to execute their jobs? Well, if you're a seller, you need sales engagement. And if you're sales loft and you've looked at the core workflows and you've said, okay, we've covered the communication aspect. So in sales loft today, before we arrived, you can make calls. You can send emails. You can text people with permission, obviously. Uh, You can schedule meetings. You can even use conversation intelligence to see how well those meetings have gone and to improve. You can measure your activity to figure out what generates more pipeline. The part that was missing was, okay, I've got this in-flight deal. How do I manage the opportunity? Because if you break down what is a sales opportunity, it's really kind of a couple of things. There's the relationship development piece. And some of that can already be covered through the, the channel. So, you know, VoIP, email, text. And then there, you know, a little bit through the call coaching stuff, conversation intelligence. Mm-hmm. But there's also two other things. There is a project management piece. And it's not usually talked about that way. But if we, we step back yeah. from anything other than a one-call closed transactional sale, it's a mini project. And for most of these sellers, they can have 20 to 40 of those going on at once, right? And they have multiple stakeholders on the selling side and the buying side. They have a business case to build. They have deliverables. It's a mini project, yep. right? There's a need for that, for like software to cover that. And then there's also a bit of an analytical piece. How do we know if this is a good deal or not, right? If you look at what we do at Costello, we had two things that we provided. We provided opportunity management, which is basically project management for deals, but it's made specifically for sales deals. And we provided a guided selling piece, which is the kind of the analytical piece or the consultative part of the sale. So we kind of complete that suite for the seller. So we bought... Costello at Fullstack, uh, who's also a sponsor of this podcast. Thank you, Fullstack. And an amazing business. When we bought it, we bought it for the consultative selling piece, which I think is all you did at the time that we... When we started the business, yeah. yeah. When, when we first got in there. And and the, the theory that we had, uh, mistakenly, it didn't work out at all. <laughs> one, <laughs> oh, no, we're heading to dangerous waters. No, no, you're, <laughs> you're safe because this was on us. The theory we had when, when we bought it, so we had, we had me, Don, Daniel, all doing sales depending on who you talk to, you're going to get a completely different story, right? Back back then. Sure. I'd like to, I'll lie to myself and tell you now, we'd all be the same, right? <laughs> Clearly. But back then, there's no question. I would have been pitching some version of make your life easier as a founder. Don would have been pitching some version of, uh, you know, risk avoidance in your business. Daniel would have been pitching some sort of, you know, we'll give your employees a better experience, right? Like, 
all of which are true, but incredibly inconsistent in terms of, you know, and we, and I couldn't have told you at the time, which one is better, which one is worse, you know, like what, what's going to convert better. And uh, so w- when we, when we brought the product in it, we specifically brought it in to say, well, okay, let's do some AB testing on these the analytics piece, right? Like, let's, let's just try it. Let's look at what deals based on which version we do, which deals close, all, all that stuff. And then that was the theory. So we got three seats on the product and we're like, great, we're all going to do this. And of course, reality hits and only Daniel is making sales conversations. Don and I completely uh, bail on it, mostly because I've got a bunch of other businesses that I'm involved in. And Dawn is, turns out, running the business day to day from an operations perspective. So it turns out she's only really tagged into deals when you need the expert with 10,000 hours to come in and talk about how this thing really works, right? So she's not leading the sales conversation. You know, when Daniel, six months, nine months into the product usage on our side as a customer, we realized we're not using this product at all. Like, like, like it just, in it, which is on us, not, not you. Like the promise was real. We just didn't leverage it. And then, you know, the end of that first year, I go to Daniel and I'm like, well, Costello, like that's done, right? Like we can cut that from the budget, not because we don't love you, but <laughs> early stage company. And Daniel, Daniel was basically like out of, out of my cold, dead fingers. And I'm like, wait, what? And he's like, he's like, dude, you have no idea. You got to look at this. And he shows me this dashboard of every deal, real deal, not prospect, right? But every real deal he has in the pipeline. And and it and this amazing like pro, you know, it's project management right this amazing set of checklists around like no this one we still need these pieces of information this one I still need to get this person identified this one I still like he just runs this amazing checklist deal by deal it's unbelievable in terms of like what needs to happen to get this deal over the finish line and he's like you cannot take this from me <laughs> and I'm like dude it's your like great like that's amazing i i'd never seen that screen i ne- didn't even know it existed and it was and i will tell you it was impressive because <laughs> i was just like i didn't even know it did that yeah and that and that is listen credit to a number of people on our side well first one thank you for letting us interview your team and and because as you know that's how we build product but that is credit to clayton who met with people and get feedback that is credit to my co-founder rob foyer who would do the same thing Charlie Mode, our VP of engineering, uh, Jeremy Craven, our backend engineer, Ashley Smith, who was our UI UX designer. Like all of those people talk to customers every single, I mean, obviously I did as well, every single day, right? And they got their feedback and that's how you build a great product. And, but it is, it is. And the, the thing is, it's built to match the way that they work. It's built to match the way that they work because for most of these people, I mean, if you were to atomize the sales job, it's kind of three things. You have to develop, you have to build relationships. So you have to have a skill set around empathy and understanding the other person. And that's important. It can't be just about you. It has to be about them as well. And, you know, if you're a good sales professional, you have to do the right thing for the customer. Two, you have to have some project management skills because of the things that we already talked about with the deal. And then yeah. three, you also have to have some consultative, some consultative or analytical skills, right? You have to be able to assess what's the right thing for this customer because usually they're not doing the thing that you're doing all day, every day, like as, as in your business. Yeah. You are, right? So it's your job to be a guide and to talk with them and to help them figure out the right solution to that problem. That's a lot to ask for anybody, right? To merge all three of those skill sets. But when we're asking that, that individual to also do that across 20, 30, or 40 in-flight deals at a time, it's a lot. And so what that translates to is there are often very winnable deals that are in a pipeline that are just going to slip through the cracks. And so the project management aspect, which is, you know, we just call it opportunity management, it's really just there to serve as kind of that external co-pilot or external brain for that seller to help them not forget to do that thing that they need to do to progress that deal. And it works. You know, the other thing I will tell you from a sales management perspective, not that, not that I manage Daniel because he's killing it without me, but, but I will tell you one of the things that, that I found really jarring as I, as I've gone back to that dashboard and looked at it is it makes very clear where progress is or isn't. Uh, which is something that's really hard to see when you're only looking at activities, right? So if you're in HubSpot, in our world, we, we live we live in HubSpot, right? And and many of our companies and HubSpot's great, tracks activities. You can see that you can see the deals, you can see the conversations, you can see the emails, the phone calls, the whatever. But like 
a lot of it's just noise. You don't see pro- what you can't see is progress. Unless somebody moves a deal from one stage to the next, you have no sense of movement. And one of the things that I found that was really interesting looking in Costello is you can see movement even within a stage, right? If the, and I'm sure this is totally dependent on how it's set up and you know what you're tracking, but um, at least in the in the full stack world, we we're able to see that, that like, yeah, this, this deal, you know, this opportunity has been in this stage for some period of time, but you know, we've got two of the five things we need to get done in this stage done. And, and you can very quickly then drill into it to see what are the out, you know, what are the blockers, what's left, what, you know, what needs to happen. One was the last touch points. You can still get to the activities, but that it kind of like, that's not, at least my interpretation is that's not the point, right? For me, that was a, just thinking through like, how do I know, you know, is Daniel doing the right things? Where do I need to provide coaching? Where could maybe he coach me? Uh, and some things maybe he's better than me at. Like all of that was visible in there in a way that I don't see visible. You know, we we only use HubSpot and some of our other businesses and, and I don't have that visibility over there. And so that that's one of the things that I found really interesting just anecdotally uh, as, as we were going through it is to, to me, I had this better sense of like, oh, like I know what he's doing. I can see the, this movement in a w- different way than like, okay, I know he made 10 calls today. Like that doesn't tell me a lot. No, and, and he can see the movement too. And that, that's the important thing. So if you think about it, so there's two things going on there. There's the project management piece. It's taking kind of angst and, and kind of cognitive load off of him so he can focus on what he's doing and not, man, did I forget this today? Who is this call? Like not worrying about that. But then the other piece, and you know, my co-founder Rod and I talk about this a lot. And, and this is one of the things that excites us about uh, being partnered with SalesLoft. Arguably, what we're great at, in addition to kind of the opportunity management part, the project management, and the, the analytical piece, you know, freeing up the seller for the relationship piece, is fit. We can help you assess fit. Like, does this deal make sense? Because you'll see, as you mentioned, in, you know, in Costello, you'll see very quickly. Hey, I'm looking at this deal and this is not a good fit. Like this use case is a bad use case for us. We have to get rid of this or it's a great use case for us. And, and here's what we need to do next to move it forward because here's the gap. Like this is the gap in that deal. What's amazing about SalesLoft is we just got married to the world's best engagement data, right? So like we can see now what was that activity data, not just outbound, like you to them, we can see if they respond. And that's a really valuable signal. So when you marry like fit with engagement, you suddenly can create almost this kind of like two by two, where it's like, you can put deals into four quadrants, like high fit. So good deal. And they're really engaged. We would expect this to come in, right? Let's lean in here. Or a high fit, but they're not really engaged. And you can start to think as both a sales leader and a rep, okay, how do I... Looks like the problem here is engagement. There's a relationship miss here. What do I do, right? Or it's low fit, but really engaged. They might be really excited, but this is not typically a deal that that closes for us, right? Like you can go through each quadrant and you can start to basically tease out what's the next step almost programmatically for that. And so if you're a seller, what's so wonderful about that is it kind of slows the game down. And when you're managing 40 deals, it makes it easier for you to spend time thinking through the way you want to execute on that thing versus spending a bunch of cycles on of the 20 things that could be going on with this deal. What do I think is happening right now? And that's exciting. What's next for Costello? Well, one of the things, that, uh, so we're going to build that thing. Because you're, you're, you're just hinting at this now, right? Yeah. Which is what's leading me down that path. Yeah, there's yeah. no question. We're going to build the thing that we, you know, we just talked about. Like, there's awesome. no doubt about it. I mean, we have the world's best set of engagement data because we're part of SalesLoft. We're phenomenal at fit. So we're going to help sellers. With so the, the axis, while you were describing that, so those four quadrants, I, of course, immediately plant a third axis on there because that's what I do, do. Make a simple product complicated. That's my gift to the world. Actually, I'm pretty sure that's Michael's gift to the world, and I've inherited some of it. But we love him. Yes. <laughs> the man's a genius. But the, the thing that's interesting to me, thinking through those deals is, you know, you've got engagement and fit. The, there's a quite like the third axis, I want to be p- profitability, right? Or like 
maybe not even that, maybe that's the wrong word, but like supportability, like it's a, the, the thing that made me think of this is the, the quadrant where they're highly engaged, but they're not a good fit. One of the things when I think of fit is not just like how likely are they to close, but like, do we even want them to close? Because if they're not a good fit, is this going to be a high cost to support this customer? Are they going to be a needy customer? Not because there's something wrong with them, but because we're not the right solution for them. Maybe this other solution is a better solution for them. Yeah, you're right. And it's the nice thing about that two by two, and it'll get smarter and smarter over time, is you can, you can get rid of some of those deals. So I'll give you an example from a real life customer. So I was, I can't tell you the customer, but this particular customer sells to technical buyers. They're San Francisco based. They were a customer of ours before the acquisition. They're going to make the transition with us, like the rest of our customers, the sales loft, and they're going to get additional capabilities because of that. So they sold the technical buyers. Often, where deals would stall for them is if it wasn't, at least from the, the sales leader's perspective, if it wasn't a C-level priority. For the guided selling piece that we offer, he asked the team to start asking two questions because when they would talk to kind of the mid-level or lower technical buyer, they'd be like, hey, is this a priority for you? And they'd be like, yeah, for sure. It is every time. But they couldn't figure out why some of these deals were stalling. They'd be like, is it a priority for the boss? And so they'd be like, I don't know. Or yeah, it's not the boss's priority, but this guy really wants to buy. And they didn't have good data on that. And we obviously, as you know, make it really easy to capture this stuff because we can take the notes that your seller is going to take anyway, get them into the CRM, structure them for them so they don't have to do the work. And then we can use machine learning on that, which we do to tell you, is this thing really a fit based on what you're learning on this call? So what emerged for them really quickly when he asked them to ask these two questions, and the questions are, is this a priority for you? Like, yes, no. Great. And then, you know, well, who says no to that? Yeah, nobody, right? But then, right, the next, okay. The next, <laughs> but here's the magic. The next question was, is it a C level priority? Because the hypothesis was for at least their product. Interesting. If it's not a C level priority, I don't think we close these deals. My gut tells me we're not closing these deals. I don't have the data because it's hard to capture the data without Costello, but I don't think we close them. So what they found out really, really quickly was if, it was not a C-level priority. Those, that's like the land of dead deals. Didn't matter if the mid-level person wanted to buy it. And, that, and to be clear, mid-level, everyone matters. But yeah. they, they couldn't get, if the boss didn't want to buy it, they weren't able to get the budget released. Yeah. If they said yes to both questions, it was a priority for the mid-level technical person and it was a C-level priority, they were five times more likely to win those deals. So in, in the... In that example, going back to the thing that you raised, if, yeah, they're really engaged, we'd still show this as not a great fit in that case because it wasn't a C-level priority. So it's high engagement, low fit. So it's like box, you know, lower left box. You don't want to be in that box. So that that's awesome. What our customers started doing, by the way, to tie this story off is you would say, okay, if you want to keep this in the forecast, you have to ask the person that you're speaking to to bring their boss on the next call. And if they won't come, we have to get rid of it. And in a couple of cases, the boss came and those deals resurrected and most of them they did. And that seller got their time back to spend time on the ones that were closed. Because as I talked about earlier, in everyone's forecast right now, there are some winnable deals that are going to slip through the cracks because people are managing 20, 30, or 40 of them. And some of those things shouldn't be in the forecast. So our job, and this is one of the things we're going to do with sales lot, is to help you quickly identify the ones you should lean into. So you, of the available time you have, because that is very much a finite resource, it's going to the place that's going to do the best for you as a seller and for the business and for the customer. Love it. Can't wait to see it. It's going to be awesome. All right, man. I've had you for an hour and a half. Thank you so, so much. Can, I, can we close on like three things? Yes. I would tell you as I reflected on three things. Heck Yes. And you take as much time as you need. I'm in no rush. And this will seem abstract, but like I, I've gotten this question a couple of times since we've gotten acquired because I think often people will give unhelpful advice. So, so like needle me on this and we'll dig in. And they're like, what is, you know, how do you build a good business and all, all that stuff, right? Uh, and they'll hear stuff that is absolutely true, which is like, you know, build something that people love. And that's true. But the question often is, well, how do I, how do, I do that? I would argue it's not just building product that people love. You have to build a company that people love, right? And that includes the people because even if 
the product you offer doesn't require a human on your side to talk to a human on their side, the humans that work on your side will determine the experience for the people on the other side. So really, like if we want to get to like first principles on how to build an amazing business, and I reserve the right to get smarter over the years, by the way, and right add on. to this, okay. but I would boil it down to kind of these three things. One, keep the focus on the customer, right? If you are laser focused on the customer, it doesn't mean that as the business grows, you, you can totally be untethered to like what a competitor might do. You know, there'll be a situation where they come up with something great and then you're going to have to respond. But by and large, your bias should always be focused on the customer. Get as close to the customer as you possibly can, right? And so you experience that. You're like, this is crazy. We have one person, but you would talk to us and you were the customer. So we kept talking to you and that helped us build a better product. And we were doing that whether you were, you know, you or sales loft or the customers that we had that were larger than sales loft. That's how you build a great product, right? You get as close to the customer as possible. You talk to them as much as you can. You co-develop products with them. That doesn't mean you can't imagine things that they've not seen, but you have to bring it to them, at least bring the design and get feedback. Whoever is closest to the customer wins, right? That's a Bernadette Jiwa quote. She's totally right. So that's principle one. It's an amazing quote. Like uh, I would tell you, by the way, the book I stole that from, and I promise we're going to wheel back to two and three is a book called Meaningful. If I'd read that book at 20, I would have said, it's a pretty good book. At 30, I would have been like, yeah, it's just a good book. I'd probably probably recommend this book. At 40, now that I've been around the block and been beaten up by life a little bit, I would tell you that this woman's a genius. Like she is a genius Uh, when it comes to getting close to the customer and making sure that you understand how to be meaningful in their day. So that book is, again, for those playing at home, Meaningful by Bernadette Giwa. You should read that book. Quick, quick, quick read. Okay, so principle two, get the best people you possibly can, right? Get the best people you possibly can. Because at the end of the day, the business is really about people. And those people are your customers and the people on your team. And if you get the right people who are both values and mission aligned with you, good things will happen, right? So like, look at our business. Everyone in our business loved the customer. Everyone in our business focused on the customer. And as a result, We integrated chat into our app because we wanted to get close to the customer. We wanted to hear requests from them immediately. We wanted to hear about like problems immediately. We would write into like if you hit like a an issue with a sync with Salesforce or HubSpot. What we didn't hit was like what what we would not message was. Oh, it looks like you have a sync problem. Instead, we we acted like a human to another human, and my team was on board for this. It would say, "Ugh." Man, this looks like that's frustrating. We're so far, we're so sorry. We're frustrated too. Click this button to, to to immediately chat with someone on our team. We're going to solve this together. And what would come out of that? And I'll t- in a minute. I'll talk about how we scale that. Hmm. But what came out of that was better product because one, we found out about problems immediately. Right. And if our developers were the people answering that, they'd turn around and solve that almost immediately. Right. And so the experience for the customer was amazing, but the experience for the rest of our customers was also amazing because then they didn't have to hit, they that, didn't hit that issue. Right. Exactly. So the question I often get on that is how do you scale it? Well, it's pretty simple. In the beginning, everybody's on chat. Later on, you give them duty. So if you have two, three, four, 500 customers, then you have every developer do it for an hour to a month. You just want to help them have empathy for the customer. And that's the way to do that. Okay. So principle one, keep the focus on the customer. Principle two, make sure you get the best people possible that are both values and mission aligned, right? Our culture would not have worked if the people on our, in our culture were not willing to put the customer first and they didn't want to serve the customer and they didn't love the customer. Sales Loft has the same culture. That's why we're together, right? Principle three. So those first two things, that sounds pretty abstract and not important, but I promise when we add these things up, you end up with a great product and a great business. They don't sound abstract at all. I might have some implementation questions on those later, but they don't sound abstract. Yeah, we'll we'll dive in, right? So principle three, keep the standard high across the board, but in a way that inspires instead of grinding your people down. So let's talk about what that means, because this one's the hard one, right? So if you are passionate enough to start a company you also probably really, really care about what you are putting out into the world, right? You have to be kind of, if you're going to found a company, you're kind of like part scientist, if you're smart and part artist, right? You have to care about the thing you put out into the world. 
The scientist piece is we should measure it. We should be methodical. We should have some systems and processes. The art piece is we need to intuit some stuff. We need to be able to do some of the messy creative work. And you should be very passionate about that thing that you do. So it's kind of a rare personality type to do both. The challenge with that personality type is often because of the art piece where you care very much about that thing you put out into the world and how great it is and the experience you're delivering. And you feel like it's a reflection of you. And yes, yes, yes. You can grind people down, right? You can grind them down. You can get frustrated because you're unhappy because there's a gap. Uh, I think it's Ira Glass, right? Who wrote an amazing essay for NPR about the, you know, early in your career, if you're a creator, there's a gap between your taste, what you know is good and what you're capable of producing and it's yeah. going to drive you nuts. And your goal is to kind of shrink that gap. So as a founder, it's going to drive you nuts, right? The challenge is you can't take that out on your people, right? You've just brought in, ideally, if you follow principle two, wonderful people. What you don't do is grind them down because something didn't go well. What we do is we try to inspire them. We say, hey, our goal is to do the best work we're ever going to do in our careers. And we're going to do it together. We're going to be proud and we're going to be inspired. Some days we're going to be frustrated because it's not there, but let's find out what we're all made of, what we're capable of, and what is our potential. Like my way of getting there is to build people up, right? I want to build people up and I want to help them realize that they're capable of more than they realized. Because I, I think for most humans, life kind of beats them down. And we have a K through 12 school system that kind of puts them in a box and doesn't necessarily teach them that they're capable of stretching, they're capable of creating, they're capable of realizing some of the capabilities that they have. So if you can put those three things together, a couple of things are going to happen. One, you're going to know the customer better than anyone else because you're focused on them. You're going to have people that are going to care about that customer because they love that customer and they're oriented around doing things the right way that will build a great business, right? And they'll work well with you and with the rest of your team because your, your mission aligned and your values aligned. But then three, if the standard's high, you won't quit on when it comes to making the experience better for the customer and making the business better because you won't accept anything less. The key is do it in a way where it's about striving and reaching for our best instead of kind of whipping people because you didn't like the outcome. So it really is kind of those three things. And it may seem abstract, but when those three things are kind of foundational pieces for you, what happens is you love the customer, you know them best, you're going to build great things for them. Your people, principle two, are going to be motivated to do it. And then three, you're constantly getting better because everyone is oriented to get better every day. And when that happens, your odds of success are very, very high. All right. Can I offer, I don't even know if these are challenges. Not challenge, challenge away. I, I'm going to take you down a path. I promise I'll make this relevant. All right. I've never seen you get angry. Do you get angry? No question. For sure. I do. For, in professional settings, have you been, and I, you're, you're a pretty controlled dude, but does it happen? I've never seen it. Yeah, I, I will on occasion. I will. I, I, it takes a lot. It takes a lot. I try to make it about the problem and not the people. Because my assumption is generally, if I have hired great people and we have agreed on what we're trying to do, and I believe that you are making your best effort towards it, then the problem is not you. There's something wrong in the way we're going. It's a process problem, yeah. right? Like we have a problem. And, and to be fair, most of the time in my career, that's been the case, yeah. right? Like it's been a process problem where we need to step back and say, okay, something in our process wasn't delivering the outcome we wanted. So let's work on that first. Which is what I would have expected you to say. And, and to, to be clear, I, yeah. I share your world worldview. I'm, I'm just challenging a little bit. So my, so my, my question is it was specifically on the, the third one, which is, you know, keeping kind of the artist in check and making sure that you're building your, your team up, focusing on the process and, and not whipping your people. The foil, which is not, this is not my, my argument, but the foil is, well, you've never whipped your people because that's not you. I've never seen that in you. So, so, so there's a little bit of like, you know, what's made you successful has made you successful. That doesn't necessarily mean the other way isn't. 
successful. Sure. There's a little bit of a confirmation bias there, right? Yeah, yeah. No, so I, I guess Cause, cause I don't here's how you can be successful yeah. my way. It's really your question. Because yes, are there people that are, I don't know if I can cuss on your podcast, people that are assholes <laughs> that are successful? Yeah, there are some. Sure. Right? There, there's no question. Yeah. But what I would tell you is this. That team probably long run is not going to put out the best work because they're not going to feel safe to put out their best work. And what you want, certainly as a leader, is people that will challenge you. And you got to create an environment where they feel safe to do that because my general philosophy, and I promise we'll wheel in a second into, okay, how do I manage people in a way to do this without getting, you know, angry, which is the default. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know. I like, I don't know how to manage. So my... My go-to lever is I'm going to get angry and hope that gets resolved. I promise we'll get there. But if we are like looking at that outcome where, yes, there are people that have kind of whip people, here's the deal. If you're in an innovation-driven business, at some point, you need creative output, right? You do. You need people to get into a generative mindset, right? That is hard to do when you don't feel safe, yeah. right? It's hard to do when you don't feel like you can offer ideas. The other thing that I would add to that is that you as a leader, and this absolutely includes me, are not perfect. You know, the only time in my career I ever have to be right is when I'm the only person doing a thing. The second someone else is involved, we have to be right. Like we collectively have to be right. I personally don't have to be right. I just have to recognize the best idea. I'm not perfect at that. Lots of times I miss the best idea. I probably miss it more often than I catch it. But your, your orientation has to be, I want to do the best idea. That idea doesn't have to be my idea. But you're not going to get the best idea if you're whipping your people because they're going to spend most of their psychological energy on figuring out how not to get whipped, right? Like, how do I have to position it for this person so that I won't get yelled at? How do I have to position it for this person so it won't create extra work for me? How do I have to position it for this person so they won't be mercurial and I get fired? This episode is brought to you by Full Stack PEO. Most founders start companies because they figured out a better way to solve a problem or serve a need, not because they love tracking payroll, filling out compliance forms, and explaining employee benefits packages. And yet, all that stuff still has to be done. That's why there's Full Stack PEO. Full Stack PEO specializes in turnkey HR for emerging companies, not just those core services, but advice and expertise that help founders maximize employee potential. Curious? Find out more at fullstackpeo.com. You know, I used to be a dog trainer. I know. You helped me train one of my dogs. Yeah, uh, maybe. Uh, Charlie was difficult. I I didn't do much. (laughs) Um, But I remember uh, in one of the first classes when I was when I was still learning how to teach, one of the first classes, there was a dog that came in. Uh, I want to say it was a golden retriever. It may have been a yellow lab, but a lovable yellow dog, of which there's not a huge difference between those two. And I remember this dog was there, and the, the person who it was with was an awful owner. So imagine a puppy that's eight months old, and the behavior of this dog was... You know, the it, it would constantly be looking up at the owner and then sitting and standing and pacing and sitting and standing and pacing and sit and clearly like crazy nervous energy. If you know anything about yellow labs or golden retrievers, nervous energy is not a thing. Like there's energy in a yellow lab for sure, but it's not nervous, right? Like yellow labs love the world. <laughs> so uh, labs in general do and certainly golden retrievers do. And I remember it was so weird. Uh, seeing it that, that and of course I'm thinking like what what is wrong with this dog right and uh, Michael uh, was the the guy who I was studying under uh, who was the the primary trainer you know the class ends and everybody leaves and and I go to Michael and I'm like dude what was up with that dog and he's like he's like and he just shakes his head and he's like yeah I know and I'm like what do you mean you know and he's like dude that owner is an awful human being and I'm like what do you <laughs> wait what and, and he's like, yeah, like a dog behaves like that because the owner is so inconsistent that the dog doesn't know what stimulus to respond to. 
Like, because because if if you're an owner and you just like you you know you you hit the dog when it you know when the dog stands and you don't want it to stand and you hit it, then the dog will just lay down. It'll just always lay down. It'll the dogs are really smart. <laughs> they they'll figure it out really quick, right? Like they will do the thing that does not cause pain or gets them the reward that they want. So he's like, if if the if the guy was consistent about telling the dog to sit, the dog would sit. If he was consistent about telling it to lay down, it would lay down. If he was consistent about telling it to get up, it would get up. And 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 not even like consistent like every single time, but just like kind of consistent. Dogs will figure it out. They're really smart. And he's like, the problem that you saw was sometimes the dog would get up and the guy would reward it. And sometimes the dog would get up and he'd hit it. And sometimes it would sit down and he would reward it. Sometimes he'd sit down and he'd hit it. And seriously, this guy, this owner has broken this dog. This dog will never be okay because this happened at such a young age. Like this dog is broken for life. Which sidebar, the same principle applies to humans. Right. Yeah. As you're talking about this, that's what I'm, I'm picturing this dog of like, you know, you want the best work. You, you've, you can't do that, right? There's got to be some level of consistency, some level of safety where uh, the, the team can respond to the stimuluses that are given, positive or negative, and, and, and work within that world where they, they kind of know like, okay, this is what I expect. This is what I, I know it's going to happen. We can work in this environment, right? That's right. And, and so two things. The other thing that you're going to miss out on if you behave in that fashion is, again, humans are limited. Right. It doesn't matter. Like I read all the time, you read all the time. I'm still pretty limited. Right. I have my life experiences at the things that I've read and that's great. And I love it. And I'm going to hopefully be better next year than I am this year at this time. But I'm one person like I am one person. And, you know, if you look at even like the history of innovation, right, like injecting some novices or different perspectives into the process, they don't have to be novices always leads to better results. It almost always leads to better results, right? I just finished, you know, I like to stretch. The Stanford Design School had a course I could take, so I took it. I'm like, oh, let's, you know, let's just see what these guys are doing. And one of the things that I appreciated is they leaned into that heavily, heavily when they were talking about innovation. Yeah, the best teams blend novices and experts. Uh, and this doesn't have to be products, by the way. I mean, uh, not long before we were acquired, we hired three new SDRs. Our SDR leader is amazing. His name is Kiefer Decamp. And Kiefer asked me to sit in on a meeting where they were um, working on an email template that they were going to send. They always customize it, but we'd done some first principles work around copywriting and human behavior. He was teaching the team and invited me in there. So we have these people who are new to our company. And in a couple of cases, were their first job, right? So these, they're fresh out of school. They offered in like, the, uh, I was getting Chris Rerick, who is new. This where his first job, Chris offered a suggestion that was excellent. It was excellent. Would never have thought of it. Never, like I would never have thought of it. I am 42. I'll be 43 next year. I've been around the block a couple of times. Wouldn't have occurred to me, right? But he felt safe to offer it. He did. It improved our results. We had again, Joe Hanger in the room that day. Joe was also two months into his tenure. Felt safe. Now, Joe has a little more life experience. He'd done some consulting and decided he wanted to get into tech. And we were very fortunate to have him on our team. Joe offered some thoughts in that meeting. It's two months into this job. They were great. Both of those guys improved the work product. That doesn't happen when you're like whipping people and right. you're yelling. Like, you don't have to do that. So let's wheel into the thing that you wanted to know, which is how do we create an environment where we inspire people and yet still hold them accountable? Because the, the people get angry. There's the artist part getting angry where like your taste doesn't match your work. So the Ira Glass kind of issue. Yeah. And I get it. Listen, all the time. I'm like, oh, this doesn't look the way I want it to. Like one of these days, I don't want to learn to sew, but I'll probably do it so I can create my own clothes. So they fit exactly the the way that I want them to look, which I know is totally weird. And you can make fun of me. That's totally weird. It's totally weird, right? (laughs) But like I want, I like to create things. I know exactly how I want them to look. Generally, they never look exactly the way I want them to look. I'm like, all right, I'm going to have to probably dig in and just do this thing. So listen, I, I have some of that in me. I have empathy for it. I get it. But that gap is usually not your person's problem if they've done the thing that you've asked them to do. So that, that is never an okay reason if they have, within the best of their ability, done the thing that you've asked them to do. If they're not capable of doing it, then one of two things is true. So let's get analytical. There's a process problem. So our process is broken in some way. 
when we need to fix that, or it's a skill level problem. Either we didn't train them or we've mishired, but that's also not their fault. That's on us, right? So you need to own that. So that's issue one. Issue two, so if those things aren't the case, here's how to hold people accountable without being angry. You be an adult. And by that, I mean, you sit down and you have a conversation up front and then you document if necessary. And often it's a good idea. Hey, what are the expectations for this role? Like, what are the expectations for this role? And in some roles, it's easier than others, right? So let's pretend it's a sales role. You're going to have a quota, you're going to have a target, and maybe there's like a minimum activity target that is kind of like the, let's make sure you're at least doing your job kind of stuff. If we can document that, and you can do it for a lot of different roles, believe it or not, it just requires you to spend time and be thoughtful. Well, then you can hold somebody accountable to it, right? Then you sit down with them. Uh, I had a mentor a long time ago. His name was Dick Hester. He taught me this. You sit down with them. You have the conversation. You agree on the expectations. Are these reasonable? Let's talk about it together. If they are, you document it. You sign it together. And then now we know what we're both working against. We know the rules of the game. If the other person isn't following the rules of the game, if, so let's, we'll stick with salespeople for a second. If they agreed to show up every morning at like nine or something, let's say that was important for your business for some reason. Maybe your your customers only take sales calls your at the beginning of the world day. Yeah, right. Your retail, like whatever it is, and they're not following it, then you just sit down and you don't have to yell at them. It's black and white. Hey, when we discuss this role and you agreed to take, to take this role and we agreed as to what the appropriate expectations would be. And we both decided, hey, showing up at 9 a.m. was the thing for this particular job. You agreed to that. We signed this document together. Right now, I'm looking at this. And as we know, you've come in at like 12 p.m., four days in a row. How are we going to fix this? Because if we can't fix this, I'm probably going to have to find somebody that will show up at 9 a.m. What are we going to do? That's it. That's the conversation. (laughs) Because it's not that hard. You don't have to yell at them. You just sit down and have the conversation. I know that sounds overly simplistic, but it kind of is, right? Like, you know, I mean, you're married, right? I, I mean, I have a girlfriend. Yes. She's wonderful. Like, you talk about the relationship. You have some things that you agree on. If those things aren't being met, it may be uncomfortable at first, but you just, you talk about it. Like, what you don't have to do is the Glenn, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross speech for those of you that are yes. young, which is probably most of you. Uh, and Glenn Gary and Glenn Ross, Alec Baldwin gives like an all-time performance. He is theoretically a sales consultant. He goes in, they have kind of an underperforming sales office. He gets up in front of the room. What does he do? He's Alec Baldwin, so it's emphatic. He gets up there and he says, hey, I'm going to you know abbreviate this thing. This is the way it's going to work, team. We have a sales contest. First place is a car. You win a car. Second place, I think it's like a watch. No, it's steak, steak knives. knives. It's steak knives. Third place, you're fired, right? Let me explain to you how quickly to create an environment where people are going to leave. That is the way to That's do that. That's the way to do it. Right. Instead, are they meeting our expectations or not? By the way, the other thing never to do in your company, and then I promise I'll stop, is force stack ranking and firing. That's like the dumbest thing anyone has ever done. <laughs> Like if you want to understand, like articles have been written well after the fact on this, like why Microsoft had such a dysfunctional culture for a long time and couldn't innovate. That is exactly why. And if you are young I worked and at dumb, a company that did that. Yeah. Like, and if you're young and you don't know what we're talking about, and I'll, I'll let Mike share his experiences there. Stack ranking just means every year, every quarter, whatever the yep. you know review period is for each team. We one through N. So if you have 10 people on the team or five people on the team, it's one to 10, one to five. We rank them one to 10 and people know where they fall. And if you're on the low end in some companies, you just get fired. Yeah. So let me tell you what happens in that environment. People no longer collaborate because you turn their teammates into their competitors. That is like the dumbest thing you can ever possibly do. Instead, have reasonable standards and if somebody's hitting the standard, they continue to earn their right to stay on the team. It's pretty simple. And in that environment, people will work together as a team, which is what's best for the business. So how much of, let's pop the stack and go back to number one and number two, focusing on the customer and number two again, remind me. 
Oh, get the best people you get can people. that are values and mission aligned. And the answer is obviously both, but I'm kind of interested in that not being an option. How much of that is selecting versus attracting? So, because there, there's a there's an interesting thing there where, and it, this is particularly more important, I think, in a small company than a than, than a larger company. I think in a larger company, there's, I, and again, it's always both, but but I think in a larger company, it is easier to put processes in place to to maybe select for some of that stuff. But when you're small, kind of my instinct or my challenge to you would be is it is that the fact that you care about those things and you're that's what you're constantly putting out there. And I know you, so I know that that's what you're constantly putting out there. I got those two things from you before I even worked with you. How much of that do you think is just you attracting those people to the business? And then those are going to be natural byproducts because, because, because of that versus once you're in the business, you're saying, okay, this is how we screen for this. This is how we, you know, how, how we're going to do this, which I would argue at least at the smaller scale where it is a very tight knit team and, you know, you have, particular people within the team, whether that's in engineering, sales, whatever, that are magnets for talent, right? Those magnets are going to attract people that look like them. Yes. So let's, let's do it chronologically from the life of the business. Yeah. So zero to, so we're not going to do Peter Thiel zero to one, like we're just talking like employees, zero to one kind of thing. Okay. So uh, step one, if you choose to have a co-founder, like that's non-negotiable. Like if that's if that's not there, that is going to end in a really bad place because you are getting married to that person, and you you need to treat it that way. You are business married to that person for the life of that business. So it's like getting married in real life. If those things aren't in place, that's going to end in divorce. And in a business setting, that's particularly ugly because the business probably fails as well, and you cost other people money. It's obviously super bad in your personal life as well. But in a business setting, you're impacting a bunch of other people as well, yep. uh, potentially employees. Okay. So zero to one, you and your co-founder. So if you, let's pretend you came up with the idea, you better get a co-founder that's aligned on that stuff or big trouble is in store. So let's assume we've done a great job. That just happened. You can't miss on the next one to two hires because you're exactly right. They're going to attract people just like them. And in, in the beginning... It is often, unless you have a reputation, like if I'm, you know, if I'm Elon Musk and I'm obviously not, yeah, I'm selecting. Like when, when he started Tesla or Solar City, you're selecting, right? If Kyle Porter or Rob Foreman at SalesLoft um, were to sell this business and start another one, they're selecting. They've had a massive outcome. People know them. Yeah. If David Cancel and Elias Tor has a drift, who I, I love and adore, if they started another business. Just like with Drift, they're selecting. But if you are new to this and it's your first one, you're attracting for zero to one, two, and three employees. So you better choose well because they're going to help you attract others. Uh, and you know, you're going to network. You're going to do as well as you can. And when I'm saying get the best people that you can that are values and mission aligned, don't sacrifice on the values and mission aligned. I know that may seem hard. It is so tempting. I've made this mistake. My bet is you have two. They might have the skills to do a given role. But if they're not values or mission aligned, so, you know, in my world, they're not going to keep the focus on the customer. Problems are going to ensue, right? They're going to screw up your business, even if they know how to sell or even if they know how to do accounting or they can code or whatever it is. Uh, that's going to cause a problem. So it is it seems like a luxury not to pay attention to that early on, but you have to. Now, the thing that you have to be realistic about is if you are new to this and this is your first business. Your first sales hire, unless it's your dad, is not the VP of sales at Salesforce. Like that guy's not joining. So like, <laughs> you need to know that, right? So you you better go find the person that wants to punch above the weight class and they've got the talent and the ability, but you can't sacrifice on the values and mission alignment piece because you're going to grind all over the place. Because the reality is even in a three-person company, you can't be in and everything, and you shouldn't because things won't get done if you're in everything. So if they're not values and mission aligned, they're going to make choices you're unhappy with, and then you're going to have to go and unwind them. And it's going to create conflict, and that's going to slow you down. Like there's good conflict where we're debating ideas, and then there's bad conflict where we're debating how you did things. 
You don't want to be in bad conflict. You want to have good conflict. Pre-acquisition, how often did you as a team at Costello talk about values and mission? Not enough. Not enough. We did it, I would say, a fair amount. I mean, but not, again, going back to one of the things I do appreciate about sales law, they're very, very intentional, right? They're very intentional, like in an authentic way, in an authentic way. So people will, you'll be in a meeting and this will sound cult-like, but I promise you it's not. And someone will be like, hey, that didn't feel really glass half full. That's one of the values there, right? And the nice thing about glass half full is like, you can be very, as value, we can be honest when things aren't working because you have to be like, good things aren't going to happen if you're not honest about the state of things. But you can come at it from a positive bent, which is, all right, let's go solve it. Like, we believe that we're capable of solving it. That creates a positive environment where people believe that they're capable of things and they can go out and make good things happen. So uh, what I appreciate about them, I mean, they give awards to employees. I don't know when that started around the values. Like, I, they flew me in for the company uh, holiday party, which was last weekend. They had awards, end of year awards for the different values but it will come up authentically in the meetings. And that's one of the things I appreciate about them. Like, you know, in, in our business, one of our values was get to first principles in the beginning, it would get kind of delivered through osmosis. They would hear me talk about it all the time. My co-founder talk about it all the time or when potential solutions would come up, they would be challenged if we weren't getting to kind of what is the root of this thing. Have we gotten down to first principles? Do we really understand the question here? Do we really understand what it takes to create a solution here? Is this based on solid stuff or is this like finger in the air kind of thing? So I would tell you, we, we talked about it enough that we had a distinct culture and, and it just turned out that this culture matched the business that we joined. But my eyes have been open to kind of a, the next level of that based on the way that Salesloft is running their business. And it's smart. I mean, I, I would tell you, as I mentioned, you know, someday I will start another business because that is the way I'm wired. I will build a new ship and go back to sea, but I will carry that with me. There is no question. Thank you. Thank you for, uh, dude, we got to wrap this up. I've had you for over two hours. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking this much time. I think you're that you might be the second longest uh, podcast uh, I've done. Uh, and it, it means a lot. I've, enjoyed this ton i can easily see around three in the future so i'll give you more time than a year uh let you get through the next round of lessons learned uh as you guys scale up at sales loft i really appreciate the openness the humility going through it uh which that part's not surprising but uh i would it is rare and man it, it's uh awesome to be able to see it's awesome to watch as a customer uh, and uh, truly hope you and the team the best as you guys push forward. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. If you're thinking of launching a SaaS product, startup competitors can provide data on your closest competitors, survey potential users, or provide other product validation services. Learn more at startupcompetitors.com.